Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's largest talk health radio. My name is Steve Roost and each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, clinicians, founders and investors who are driving the healthcare revolution in the UK and beyond. I am a CEO and founder of a health tech company myself and I'm passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. Last week was our biggest show ever which is fantastic. So thank you very much for listening. We did a social care special talking to Fergus and Matthew from Digital Home Visits, which is one of the UK's leading care providers. This week, we're changing it up a bit and speaking to Michael, the founder of Camet Ventures, which describes itself as a venture inventor and builder focused on creating breakthrough companies that will redefine health tech, which, to be honest, sounds pretty spot on for the Health Tech Hour. So we're very excited to get Michael on and tell us all about what Camit is up to. It's been a while since we had anyone on the show from an investment end of things. It's often overlooked by many people, um, particularly people not necessarily in the industry, that health tech businesses need a lot of funding to get off the ground. So I'm excited to um, to, to listen to, to get um, to get Camit and to get Michael's insights. Uh, in this area, um, and just you know, for example, just how do health tech companies get going? How does a company get started? Who starts a company? Very excited to to be able to share this with with the listeners. This is obviously a journey that that, that we've been on, you know, for the last few years. So I'm, I'm keen to kind of open up and and, and share with everybody. Camit's model is unique as they actually co-create the companies with the entrepreneurs, which is kind of interesting. It's very interesting. Um, Camit have created and backed a number of up-and-coming health tech businesses, including Birdie and Medloop and Beacare. Um, we actually had Medloop on the show a couple of months ago, and um, Jay Verma, their UK head. It was a great show. It's up on the YouTube channel, Health Tech Hour on YouTube, and on the UK Health Tech, on the UK Health Radio website, so ukhealthradio.com if you want to listen to that one again. Um, but otherwise, let's get into it. Michael, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. Uh, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. I'm great. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this uh, discussion. Good. Excellent. Well, so as regular listeners will know, the show is in three parts. The beginning bit is more of an origins part about how you came to be changing the world. The middle bit is all about what Canic is currently doing to kind of change the world. And the third bit is really more we used to do, which is what's the the future, but we've we, over the last few shows we've adapted it to be more around the lessons and behaviours that innovators in this space um, would recommend or that that believe that, that hold true to or can sort of um, that have been instrumental in getting them to where they to where they are. So before we get into the origins, and we talked about this, Michael, on our show for, on our on our pre-production call, I would like to just set the scene a bit for everybody listening 
um, because not everyone listening is going to be completely familiar with the concepts of venture creation, venture building. You know, so perhaps could you just explain just some basic terminology by what you mean by sort of venture creation and venture building? Um, what, what, what do they mean? What do they mean to you? Uh, with pleasure, um, Steve. So basically, what what uh, uh, what uh, we do at Kemet and what is uh, our at least the way we envision and we and we perform uh, venture building is that uh, uh, we start from a blank sheet of paper, a white blank sheet of paper, uh, empty, uh, uh, and then we we decide on which uh, I would say theme we want to, to to innovate and on what do we want to. Uh, to create new venture and new innovation. Uh, we then uh, do some research, uh, understand better, you know, this, uh, this theme. Uh, we uh, develop ideas on uh, what kind of things we believe are missing to the, to the segment or to the, the, the topic we are investigating. Uh, we design solutions, we test them. And once we feel confident, we have at hand a good idea for, um, for a business, but we, we start to put it together. So we create it. We create the medical solution if one is needed, the operational uh, solution, uh, the teams, uh, we hire teams, we, we develop technology, etc. Uh, the product, the branding, we work with agencies to develop a brand, to, to launch businesses. And we do that partnering with entrepreneurs and, and transferring the responsibility of the project uh, from us to them progressively. So you know, we are like a, a big startup which product uh, is startups. <laughs> okay, I like that. So basically, yeah, okay. So venture creation, venture building is a startup that builds other startups. Exactly, exactly. It's uh, operated cool. by entrepreneurs uh, other um, investors and, uh, and we build startups as a product. And, um, and, and how, how did your journey into this area begin? Because you weren't always in venture, were you? You sort of, You've done no. a number of things before this. No. You were at Boston Consulting. So what, which, by the way, is one of the largest consulting groups in the world, premium consulting organization. Um, but what's your, what was your journey into this space? Yes. I, I, no, you know, not only uh, the question is how I did I do that. It's also not only what I do. Uh, I, you know, I still am very uh, active in uh, strategy and, uh, and supporting a broader set of businesses on top of Kemet. But at the core, you know, if I tell you my story and how I came together with my partner to co-found Kamet, uh, I think it's a story uh, of an entrepreneur, actually. Uh, and many, many uh, entrepreneurs share, I would say, similar stories. I started my career, you know, even before that, you know, I have always been interested in technology. Uh, I studied uh, the engineering, uh, mathematics, econometrics. I was interested by the, if you look at my, you can't really see, but on the side of the screen, you, you might see most of the books I have here are scientific books. So I am, um, okay. you know, I, 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 I always had, a, I would say, a, I'm a bit of a nerd. Uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, I started my career uh, or my professional journey, I prefer to call it that way because I'm not so sure it's a career. Uh, developing businesses. So I created uh, with my brother and uh, my very best friend uh, a business on, uh, on uh, payment security and cryptography. Then uh, it was not a real success, to be honest. It was, I would say, well, we failed the company, we crushed it. But I think it's also good learnings. Um, yeah. 
And uh, and we had great investors and partners. And I mean, I'm really sad that I didn't return their money. Um, but it happens. Yes, exactly. Huh? Yeah. Then I, I created a second one uh, and a third one uh, that were uh, reasonable successes. Um, both of them, I made a little bit of money, but not a lot huh, as an entrepreneur. You know, like most, I mean, people think entrepreneurs, it's make or break. I mean, that's one of the learning. It's not true. You know, if you have a career as an entrepreneur, you will probably uh, really, uh, re- even the one that never has the big success typically uh, makes a decent living out of it if he has reasonable successes across his career. So I would say that's, uh, and, and then uh, before selling my, my third company, I joined the Boston Consulting Group. Um, for a set of personal reasons. And I uh, enjoyed really my time there. I spent uh, 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 close to 14 years. I'm not sure what happened. Hello, everybody. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, Was there a little break in our transmission? Um, If there was, I apologize. Um, Anyway, Michael, back to it. You were talking about how... um, you were talking about how you you spent 14 years at Boston Consulting. So let's yeah. pick it up there. Sorry about that technical interruption. No worries. It was a fascinating period, honestly, uh, uh, being exposed to that many business problems with great teams, uh, very, very intellectually stimulating, but uh, very different from my experience as an entrepreneur. Well, actually, the idea was a very small part, the research a very small part, and a lot of it was... Uh, about a massive focus on a day-to-day execution. Huh? Um, yeah. And I think... Were you, um, sorry, just to jump in. When you were at Boston Consulting Group, which for those of you who don't know, is one of the premier, premier consulting groups in the world, were you brought in to focus on a particular area or yes. was it, it did it change over those 14 years or what happened? No, the reality is like, you know, we, I started in a company that was different, uh, very different uh, from when I founded Kamet and Boston Consulting Group is uh, a company that's growing tremendously. So it transformed itself many times. Um, so when I joined, it was a very generalistic kind of job where you were doing a little bit of everything and very quickly, uh, you know, the, 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 the industry's the company grew and the industry of consulting get more and more specialized over time, specifically in the, in the, I would say, major markets. And so I progressively focused on uh, financial services and insurance and progressively on insurance until I, I went to support the opening of an office in Tel Aviv, where actually I w- went back to the old uh, practice, which is to be do a little bit of everything, but still having, I would say, half of my time focused on, uh, on, on insurance rather than health, even though through insurance, you cover a lot of the payment uh, issue that uh, yeah. led me to health um, a bit after a And so, you know, after this period in time, I, I realized that, uh, look, you know, uh, looking at technology, a lot of the companies I was serving were challenged by digital, the transform- underlying transformation, etc. It became very clear to me that, um, yes, you know, large corporations have a role to play in the transformation, but that the initiation of it needed to come from uh, from uh, the startup world because the ability to innovate on very very different model from uh, you know is something that's not given to every corporation. It's quite difficult to achieve. I would you know I, I tend to um, the comparison I very often make is that um, uh, it's like a, it's like a body. You know mm-hmm. when you're a baby uh, or a kid, you know your body is designed to develop new organs. And so your immune system 
will very rarely, uh, except in case of very serious disease, attack the new, newly developing organs. Okay. On the other hand, when you're an adult and you have something looking like an organ being, you know, that's being, that's developing inside your body, it's very, very likely that it's a cancer rather than a proper organ. And your whole immune system is organized to destroy it. It will fail sometime. And when it fails, unfortunately, we all know the, the sadness and the tragedy that uh, results. But uh, most, most times it succeeds. And I think it's the same for corporations. They have, a, they have an immune system. It's called audit. It's called a budget. It's called a QBRs. It's called, there are tons of names, but it's an immune system yeah. that protects the business from developing random activities that are not brain designed. And it's the exact opposite of what you want in, I would say, hardcore innovation, where you want actually organs to be developed, new companies, new ideas. You yeah. want failure, you want trial, you want, and you know that you're going to spend some, some money on things that are not going to work. But it's exactly the opposite mindset of the entire backbone of uh, protection that corporations have developed. So very, very few uh, really have what it takes to do at the same time their core business fantastically and uh, incorporating incremental innovation, yes, of course. That's part of their, I would say, day-to-day function, but developing fundamentally different business models and solutions, something difficult. And I was looking at uh, both insurance, health, mobility, even the way we deliver, I would say, propositions today. Mm-hmm. And, and it struck me that I felt that what was happening is, you know, and maybe I'm wrong, you know, maybe I'm an idealist, but what I think what's ahead of us, it's more a revolution than an evolution, you know, and look at how COVID is dismantling the way we work. Okay, we work remotely, some people work from abroad, and it will create a, cre- a clear challenge on, a, um, uh, on, on uh, employment law, on employer law. I already see some countries saying, ah, you work from the UK in Portugal or in Spain, and we have a special regime, etc., etc. Yeah. And this is going to be, I'm not sure if it's going to be the norm tomorrow, but it's going to be the norm over time. Yeah, well, where we would like it. If you've got, if you know, if you've got people working from home in a different country, where do those employer taxes go? Where do those social security payments go? Yeah, like, it's, yeah I, I agree. It's it's going to get complicated. It's getting very complicated. And if you ask me, if I look at even my organization at Kamet, many people now are working from home, and many people, you know, found that their home is their original country, and they they used to be living in London, but you know what? They're from Spain, and they were happy during the the pandemic to go back close to their loved ones rather than not see them at all. And then why come back? Because it works so well. So you see, well, we can jump into we can jump into COVID as we go through the show. But one question I want to ask off the back of that. So, because ha, ha, one easy journey, and this happens to lots of people, is they come up with a specific idea to found a particular company because they they find a problem and they build a company to solve that problem. Whereas where you ended up saying was actually there are tons and tons of problems that we're interested in. Let's build a company to build companies to solve those problems. And yes. so was that something that you, was, did you go through yes. a process to get to that yes. point or did you already know that was what you wanted to do? No, as a matter of fact, it's again yes. uh, the combination of uh, meeting the right people who share the same idea, who have already started on a similar journey and, uh, and to embark together on a project. So, that, you know, at this point in time, I was uh, in BCG supporting corporations trying to innovate and to build disruptive models. And it was clear to me that this is something you can try but uh, but uh, 
uh, it's very difficult for the reason I explained. And uh, I was starting to think, can I, can I try to grab and to participate in this revolution uh, and to embrace it more fundamentally? And I started to chat with a lot of uh, uh, fellow entrepreneurs or uh, intrapreneurs or whatever. And, I, and my path crossed the, the one of uh, Stéphane, my, uh, my, uh, my, my CEO and co-founder, who's actually the founder of Canet, huh? Um, yeah, uh, who was uh, having a very similar, uh, you know, uh, set of questions uh, and, and a similar train of thought. And uh, he was at this point in time, a very senior executive in, in AXA Group and uh, wanted to go back to, uh, to entrepreneurship exactly the way I did and managed to convince AXA to trust him and, uh, and us with a, a big check to, uh, to try to do, uh, nice. I wouldn't say one, one company. Huh? I would say, as you said, to, to, to generate a stream, a set, uh, I don't know how to call it, a, a group uh, of companies that would have together a substantial impact on a, on a few of the verticals that uh, AXA was interested in. And we, I also strongly believe that if we manage to create this equilibrium between you know, large corporates and uh, entrepreneurs and set of startups that would gravitate around it, we, we had a chance not only to, to, you know, to disrupt the underlying industry, but also to be accelerated and to largely contribute from the proximity of this, uh, you know, of the of this large uh, star to, to an, you know, to a large extent. And I think, you know, some of this worked really, really well. Some of this was more difficult to achieve, but altogether, I think the, the the, the journey uh, clearly uh, shown showed that there is a uh, a very interesting avenue to explore for uh, uh, I would say scaling, industrializing, accelerating, improving the quality of early stage uh, uh, innovation. I would agree, and we're going to jump into the details of that of your portfolio and of the companies that you built after we stop for a quick commercial break. So we'll be back in two minutes with Michael Nidam, who's the co-founder of Canet, a venture creator and venture builder in the health tech space. We'll, we'll be right back. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. How good are vitamin C supplements? Usually only a small proportion of vitamin C actually reaches your cells and has a positive effect. Whereas the high absorption levels of Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C help maintain optimal vitamin C levels in your body and strengthen your immune system. Now get 10% off when you choose Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C capsules. Just quote 10 off at goldmanlaboratories.com. Do you suffer from pain? B-Cure Laser, a home-use CE-approved medical device for the effective treatment of pain, is now available in the UK. The results of a double-blind trial has shown that B-Cure Laser offers a significant reduction in pain compared to the placebo group. To get your special B-Cure offer now, call free on 0808 501 5122 or Google Radio Pro London. B-Cure Laser. B-Cure Laser. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and our guest, 
Michael Nidam, the co-founder of Camit Ventures, which is a venture creator, venture builder in the health tech space. They're effectively a startup that builds other startups. So, Michael, let's get into what Camit does. So how does it actually work? I know that you've said it's a startup that builds other startups. To, instead of just solving one problem that you can build a group of companies that can solve huge numbers of problems, kind of like an ever increasing number of problems to have a, a much greater impact on the world. But sort of in practicality, like how, how does that actually sort of work? Like how do you choose your problems? You know, what process do you have? How does an entrepreneur get involved? You know, talk us through that if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, with pleasure, Steve. You know, it's uh, the, the model. I don't think there are many, many uh, studios like us or venture builders like us that uh, that really take it from zero to end. But there are a few, I would say, and, uh, and a few. Uh, yes, there are a few. Uh, the, the way we operate specifically at Kamet uh, is the following. We identify areas, domain, uh, industries where we want to to innovate because, you know, largely out of our own interest or interest of our uh, partners or investors of, uh, okay. But and when I say areas, it's something relatively broad. Let's say, for example, elderly care. Elderly care was an area we looked at in elderly the past. Care. Yeah. It's an area we looked at in the past and that interested us quite a lot. We, we felt that uh, there is a big social, societal problem or around social problem around it, that uh, it's a problem that goes growing rather than uh, and then it's getting solved that uh, it's a multi-dimensional problem, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so we looked at it uh, quite closely. And the way we, we do that is that we do some uh, research, you know, basic research, exactly like an entrepreneur would do when he wants to create his startup. Huh? He would speak to tons of people, uh, meet experts, uh, and we do the same. So uh, we do a first a research uh, on the academia. So we spoke with tons of people who write books or articles around uh, social care. Uh, we spoke to institutions. So we approach uh, institutions in France, in the, in the UK, the US. Uh, um, we spoke to, to, to companies that were uh, involved around social care, you know, to ag- care agencies, to, to disruptors, you know, that, are tra- that have already put some innovate, innovative models um, in, in other markets. And we also do some uh, ground research. So, you know, we go and interview elderly people. Uh, family of elderly people, employers of families of elderly people to understand how do those people really leave the problem on a day-to-day basis. And then once we have done that, what we, you know, and this process takes us uh, anywhere from two weeks to one year. Completely depends on how vast and complex is the problem and when do we feel that we have a very broad set of understanding of the nature of the problem. You know, for elderly care, it took us, I think, four or five months. Uh, okay, so it's a good length of time. Yeah, it's a good length of time. I, it's not very expensive because, the, you know, the resources that we involve on that is a, is a small number, except for the ground research, where we have, I would say, more intense three to four weeks uh, uh, proper uh, consumer observation, ethnographic research, etc., the rest is something we, you know, we schedule progressively. We go in depth. Explore. At the end of, uh, of this process, what we do is uh, we usually uh, do what we call uh, innovation sprints. And so basically we, we associate 
along this journey, there are some people we have a good connection and that we believe are super good contributors to the topic. Okay, and that tells us, oh, I'm very interesting, interested in continuing uh, to have a dialogue with you guys, to see what you, where it's going to take us. And so we invite those people together with our team at Kamet, designers, uh, strategists, etc. And we go through uh, an innovation process. So, you know, however you put it, I could describe it to you. It's going to be long and tedious. So I won't. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, okay, thank you. Yes. Thank you. But uh, if if you want to put it uh, simply, it's a it's a set of uh, very structured brainstorms, out of which we get uh, a long list of uh, ideas that are re relatively uh, substantiated, but on a sheet of paper on a one pager. Okay. And when I say a long list, it's anywhere between ten and uh, I think the longest we ever had was uh, eighty or eighty five on one thing. And it wow. can be very it can be very yeah, tons of ideas. You know, ideas is something fantastic. It's very cheap, and everybody has some. So, <laughs> That's the challenge: is how do you pick the right idea, and then how yeah. do you move it on, right? So the first step you see to to pick the right idea is first to inform the people who are supposed to create them. Once we have informed them with a similar level of information on top of what they know and their own, uh, I would say, personal appetite and um, and opinions that we get a better quality of ideas. And the process that we use for those brainstorms also force people to bring a better quality of ideas. And usually what I observe is that the first 20 ideas that we get from someone are to be thrown almost immediately to the bin because those, okay. are, those are the ideas that uh, they, they think of every day. So everybody think of those ideas. But then... <laughs> so you have to basically, what you're saying is the first ideas that everyone come up with is just always the ideas that everyone comes up with so you exactly. just have to get them out of the way exactly and you, and to get them out of the way the best way is to get them in the way right right because if you say no let's not speak about that they come back they are very stubborn right so what you do is you <laughs> they are stubborn yes so what you do is you ask them like to come with only five more ideas after the first round and you will see the five more they are of a very different nature because it forces people to think out of their own box Right. And that, that's I when think that's interesting because I think that I think that so I was going to say I think that that's interesting is a kind of a, a forced way a forced innovation pathway you know so I think people have this impression of, of of being an entrepreneur or having a startup that you're just in a room you know coming up with crazy ideas the whole time and actually having that structure in place I think it makes it significantly more efficient right particularly when you're trying to solve these like you say multi-dimensional complex problems. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it makes it, uh, you're more likely to have a, a broader set and a higher quality of ideas. And then, you know, this process is not only about generating a long list of uh, crappy ideas, it's also substantiating, aggregating the ideas of a group of people into consistent propositions. And that's what we do. Then my team work for an extra, I don't know, uh, again, uh, two weeks to uh, six weeks, okay, to, to take this material of the idea and to substantiate it. Ah, we thought that there is an issue of uh, social life or elderly. Can we validate that? How can we substantiate that? Ah, this guy had this idea of creating, a, 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 you know, um, a chat roulette for uh, over 70. Is there really uh, something there? And how can we, what do we need to check to make sure that this idea flies? And we do that for 
every single one of them. So with, the, with, with the ideas that you have, when, when you're evaluating new ideas, do you have like a list of things that you're looking for to validate it? Like, like it doesn't have to be formal, but more like, well, we need it to be a little bit like this and a bit like this and a bit like this. Or we need yes. to take this box, this box and this box. Yes, yes. You know, I will tell you the answer is definitely yes. We we need to have uh, to check many boxes for an idea to go to the next stage. Okay, and and the boxes okay. are, are around. Is there a real pain point? Okay, meaning it's good to have ideas, but does it really meet a need? Are people with, with yeah. is there a real problem? Here? Yeah, is there a real problem? And and we spend some time validating if there is a real problem. Okay, second. Uh, uh, is there a way to make money out of it? Because, you know, we, as much as we want to change the world, we, we are really conscious that you don't change the world if you don't have money. And if you don't make money, you don't get money. Very true. Okay, so, Very true. So, you can't change you know, the world without a valid business proposition. No. So you need a you know, business proposition. And that's the second step because you can say, oh, I have this idea of something that could prevent uh, stroke. Or a heart attack. We had that at some point. A super idea to save many, many. Oh, yeah. Money. Yeah, but no business. Oh, model yeah. Do it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh right. So maybe you know, keep that one. Maybe maybe the technology will catch up and then like. the technology is there. The problem is willingness to pay. Huh? you know, we, we looked at it. I can tell you, uh, we, we thought very clearly. What? How? How many people are dying from heart attack because, the, you know, an emergency service cannot come quick enough. And how many people know what to do okay. uh, to, to take care of people right. who are suffering from a heart attack? And why not connecting them at the moment of the heart attack through a very simple technology system and have your neighbor who knows how to deal with it come to your home if you are suffering from a heart attack? He will be there faster. Especially, you know. And so it's relatively easy uh, to yeah. do this technology. How much do you think people who suffered from an heart attack are willing to give to people who saved them? I don't know, but I mean, I think it depends on, they, have they already suffered the heart attack or is this before they've suffered it? Or what is, so even the, one, the even the one who suffered the heart attack and were saved by, I would say, uh, independent uh, people, uh, okay, and they can just give some money to the, to the system, to the Red, Red Cross or whatever. What do you think is in their opinion yeah. of an appropriate I mean, amount of money for this? I mean, I feel like this is one of those trick questions where it's sort of like, you know, you expect them to be like, well, my neighbor saved my life. So therefore, I see a lot of value in this and I would give a lot of money. But actually, it turns out it's going to be like two pounds or something. Yeah, it's what, a little what more, but I not mean, I it really low. Yeah, it's 50 pounds. The people who were who were saved from right. something like that are willing to give 50 yeah. pounds. 50 pounds. And the problem is wow. that. I mean, it's, the people it, who were not safe yeah, yeah. consider it's useless. And so you see, the willingness to right, pay right. along this yeah. solution yeah. is too is too thin, much too thin. So maybe this solution is great for, you know, emergency services, et cetera, et cetera, or for uh, charity, but uh, to develop a business, it just didn't fly. So you see, this is an example of what we do. We, we have sometimes very good ideas that operationally flies that addresses a real problem yeah. The more latent and the less explicit, the better for us, because then you have you, you, you face a, a lesser risk of facing competition. But uh, in the end, yeah. uh, if you don't have people willing to to pay for a service like that, yeah, we also drop it. And if uh, we believe that what they're willing to pay doesn't cover at least two, three times the cost of the service, we also drop it. 
there is a, also a, you know if we want a, a solution to live they will need not only to have a good business but they will need to attract uh, vc money or uh, family of yeah exactly and so they need to have a target addressable market that's big enough and uh, and i would say um, a speed to um, to generate top line that's sufficient so we pay a lot of attention of uh, of the, the the ability to put in place a go to market that's scalable in the model yeah so i, I think this is just to jump in here i think for, for people listening that that aren't from the startup space or the entrepreneurial space or you know it, the the journey is very bumpy and and you know particularly in health tech which we can kind of come on to but what what michael's talking about here really highlights that people come up with ideas for businesses all the time okay and that doesn't that, that there are thousands of things that you then have to think about in order to be able to scale that business because in order to scale it particularly in health you're going to need outside investment realistically you know that, that it's very very hard to do what's called to bootstrap a health tech business purely because of the regulatory hurdles and the 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 the, the kind of certain aspects of the market and the, the scale and the, the level of clinical accuracy and all that type of stuff and so um you have to be thinking ahead which is to say well is the business that i have now is it targeting a large enough market that people who would want to invest could make enough money from it because it could be large enough because the market is large enough and then the other bit would be like michael talked about there is really relevant in the uk around the nhs is someone going to pay for this yes it's a great idea yes you know it might save some lives or it might improve people's health but who is going to pay is the patient going to pay is the nhs going to pay who is going to pay so I think it's interesting, Michael, that you guys do all of that thinking up front in an analytical way, which is not necessarily the case because some people can just start a business and then try and they try and figure this stuff out as they go. You know, that's the big difference. That's why when you look at our success rate, you see we 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 design we, we identified hundreds of ideas in the you know in the past six seven years. We designed probably uh, close to forty models. At, at some level, we launched 20, 25 companies and we lost one or two. And, and the reason we have, right. and I would say on the market, you, you know, uh, if people who are listening don't know exactly how it happens, it's probably uh, out of 10 startups that start, one or two make it to the, to the B round, to two successive uh, financing rounds. Right. And, and we have uh, the opposite ratio because a lot of these elements of, you know, uh, that make companies fa- fail, we de-risk them from the get-go. So we invest, we sp- I wouldn't say invest, we spend a little bit more money than companies that are um, launched by fun- funders without uh, a studio in the very mm-hmm. early stage, but we have, a, I would say, a failure rate after that that's uh, quite low and definitely much lower than the... Yeah, market. I think that's amazing. Yeah. I think that's very... I think that's that's amazing. So... We're about to, we're going to take a break in a second. So I'm going to ask one more question now. And then in the final part of the show, I want to go into some of the top health tech companies that you guys have created. So Birdie, Beer Care, and Medley. Um, but when I you... Go a few other examples, yeah. Okay, perfect. Well, we can go into whichever ones you want to, want to go into because um, they're all doing really great, great things. So how, um, after you've done the process, you have the idea, you validate the idea, how do you bring in the entrepreneurs into that discussion? Like, how does so that was happen? Go- 
I was going there because I would say, you know, there is one element in Kemet that's super important, which is around the idea. And there is a second dimension that's as important, if not more important. And we spoke very little of it, which is about the team. And uh, what makes a company a success is a good idea with a great team or a bad idea with a great team or no idea with a great team. Okay. And we right. use the idea at Kemet to attract great teams. And it's a very important element of this. Okay. So sometimes we have entrepreneurs in residence that work from the get-go with us. And sometimes we bring them along. Maybe I'll, uh, I'll, I can pick that uh, back up when, we are, when you're done with the commercial, right? No, keep going. We've got a couple of minutes. So why don't you tell us about it now? Okay. So basically, uh, we have both models. You know, when we find very good entrepreneurs. So first of all, we have in Kemet people that we onboard that we call entrepreneur in residence that are positioned to become co-founder, but not mechanically CEOs or core founder of the company or core contributor that, you know, contribute to this idea generation process and usually are interested in the topic and are doing the first steps of the company with us. Okay. Uh, they are like, I would say, uh, super project manager, uh, uh, sometimes they're real entrepreneurs, sometimes not yet, but they are wannabe entrepreneurs with a very good entrepreneurial, I would say, myself. And uh, once we have developed the idea, we have a clear view of what's the ideal team. Okay. We have also met tons of people who have industry expertise along this process, and some of them potentially interested to join the team. It happened to us in many, many companies that we had along the way of this interview process some academics, some scientists, some GPs, some specialists that wanted to be part of the of the founding team of the company and that we could at attract from the get-go. And, and then we have a second process, which is very dependent today or historically on our network and that we will intend uh, uh, to, not to industrialize, but to professionalize and scale, where we, we reach out to the market and find, you know, the one, two capabilities that we're missing through people that want to be part of this project. It can happen very soon or it can happen a bit later because we stick with a very important role with the company for the first year and a half of its uh, start. And that's when we uh, seriously work on putting together a team that, that is as investable as the idea. Okay. Most of cool. the team at, at Kemet met their co-founder through Kemet. Okay, good. Well, after the break, we're going to come back and we're going to just go into all of the, or some of the health tech businesses that you created and are backing because um, I know there's some people, like I said, Medloop's already been on the show. We know they're doing great stuff, um, but I'm sure there's lots of others. So we will be right back after this commercial break. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Scalar light is the quantum energy emitted from the universe, from the sun and stars. Now, Tom Palladino, a humanitarian and scalar light researcher, has created the world's only scalar light healing system, a system that can bring long-distance healing and wellness to humans, pets, and plants via a photograph. Get your free 15-day trial now at scalarlight.com or click on the Scalar Light banner on the UK Health Radio website. 
shields like masks are top of mind right now. But did you know you have inner armor working constantly to protect you from pathogens? It keeps you healthy and thriving. It's your immune system. Ion Gut triggers the body's natural ability to support gut strength all year long, so your immune system can protect you when you need it the most. How are you treating your inner armor? Visit uk.ionbiome.com to learn more. Ion Gut. Protect what protects you. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to the final part of this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and Michael Nidham, co-founder of Camet Ventures, venture creator, venture builder in the health tech space. So, Michael, before the break, we said that we were going to jump into some or you know many of the health tech ventures that you guys have, have created. So, please, the, the floor is yours. Take us through some of the areas that you guys have, have focused on and, and what some of your companies are doing. With pleasure. So listen, one of the we have looked at many verticals in uh, in health tech. Uh, we looked at uh, how can we improve access, how can we improve, uh, I would say, patient centricity, recreate you know this feeling that uh, you have your personal doctor, your family doctors, and some people still do, but most people they go to their practitioner, but they don't have a real, uh, I would say, specific relationship with them, and so the knowledge of the history, etc., is all on a is a numerical knowledge rather than a physiological one. And we're trying to recreate, uh, I would say, a, a better quality uh, through, through data. And then we also see that uh, there are loads of tasks that are performed by doctors, by practitioners, etc. That could be, uh, I would say, augmented through technology, through uh, deep learning, etc. And, and we're trying to, to work on this field. So I'll give you a few examples, okay? On access, and one of the oldest companies we have created is a company called CARE, Q-A-R-E, which is a telemedicine company. It's a company that start, that uh, operates in France that we recently uh, sold to Health Hero. I don't know if you know Health Hero. Yeah, I've heard of Health Hero. Yeah. Okay, and, and so uh, this uh, company, CARE, uh, is uh, and was uh, and is still, I, see, I would say, the leading telemedicine company in France. Oh, wow, cool. I bet they had a good year over the last, well, a good, a good, a good uplift over the last 18 months. Yes, it was, uh, to be honest, the regulation didn't really enable uh, telemedicine for French people living in France before uh, COVID in an easy manner. So the company was uh, focused on delivering these services to uh, expats. Okay. And they really managed to open up their French, uh, for uh, you know, French for France service, uh, th- thanks to uh, you know, the, I would say the, the, the easing, the easing of the regulatory constraints that were accelerated by COVID, definitely. So yes, uh, they had okay. a, a good growth ride, but they were already on a good growth ride before that. But it it eased a little bit, uh, I would say, the regulation around the offer. So that's one example. Our um, particularity is there is that we, we we never focused on GPs. Okay, we from the get go focused on having a multi specialist uh, digital clinic so that we can provide a, a, a broader set of services to the patients and manage part of their, I would say, uh, medical pathway within the platform, and hence have a better, tighter uh, connection. And another particularity is. is Instead of uh, like what Babylon does today, etc., connecting to Babylon and ending up with uh, whoever is available, 
you haven't got the ability to do exactly that or to select your own practitioner and to stick with him and adapt to his uh, availabilities online. So, you know, this is a, uh, you know, trying to, to recreate uh, for the people either the, cho the choice that they should have in real life to go and see a doctor that knows them, that they trust, or to go and see someone quickly because it's a smaller issue and what they need is uh, someone quickly and uh, etc. So, that, yeah, so that's an example of a company. I think uh, I, don't, I don't want to, to, you know, to give wrong figures. Uh, I'm not even sure it's public domain, but yeah, they are definitely growing very fast. Right. And, uh, and already uh, one of the leaders in the, in the field. Uh, so um, a, a second company that we developed at the same time, you know, was focused on occupational health, where we tried uh, to, to provide uh, solutions for uh, occupational health professionals to deliver a better service to the company that they, that they assist by having centralized information about the workforce, by having a smoother, more automated process in collecting individual data, and um, in reviewing, uh, I would say, special circumstances and assessing the, the risk of a company and giving them tools to compare companies in the same sector without having to, you know, to, to have access to personal or private data. And so we developed this solution uh, at the same time six years ago. And uh, it's a company called Padoa that's operating also in France. And that I think is, the I wouldn't say the leader, but one of the leaders uh, in occupational health in France already, I think they, they are growing very fast. And it's, uh, yeah, they're probably serving today. Uh, I don't think I'm wrong if I say around 2 million uh, employees. So 10, 10. Wow, 2 million people, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not small anymore. You know, it uh, takes time to bring a startup to scale, but uh, after a while it reaches scale, yeah. So um, another company that we, we were guilty of, you know, in a completely different field uh, is uh, Ibex. I don't know if you've heard of this company. Ibex is a company... Uh, that is invested by um, 83 North and uh, Octopus Venture together yeah. with us that, uh, uh, that is uh, developing a software to help pathologists analyze biopsy. So, you know, the idea is very simple. There is this, uh, this medical job, pathologists, uh, people looking at uh, uh, flesh on a microscope. And yeah, they put the to diagnose. samples on, yeah. on a slide. On the slide, yeah, uh, it's flesh between two two glass slides and trying to to diagnose whether there is a cancer and inflammation, if the cells are normal, not normal, etc. And they spend quite quite some time looking at very tiny bit of uh, of tissues. And uh, there is uh, this emerging technology of doing that on a computer because you can scan the tissue and have a high definition image. And so Ibex is adding a layer. Right. That. It's adding a layer of uh, deep learning and. Uh, identifying cell by cell, highlighting zones that it considers is likely to be a cancer, is likely to be an inflammation, etc., and uh, assisting the pathologist in delivering its diagnostic much faster and much more accurately than before. And this company is already deployed. Uh, I think they, they have a partnership with the NHS. Uh, they are deployed with some clinics uh, uh, in the or uh, hospitals in the US, uh, in South America. They're operating also in, uh, in Europe through, uh, I would say, private lab partnerships. They have a partnership with a, with a scanner company, imaging company, etc. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, well, it's starting to be sizable too. Um, uh, and clearly, it's hitting on a point because, you know, the number of cancers is growing every year. 
and the number of yeah. pathologies is decreasing every year. So there is here. Yeah, I think like anything, I mean, in, yeah, I mean, anything in this space, and we've seen it quite a lot on the show, you know, in various different ways, but anything that, that increases the efficiency and throughput of diagnostics or, or, you know, scanning or imagery without needing to create more physical bodies is yeah. going to be something that is very interesting and very useful within a healthcare system, you know, going forward. Because again, even if the number of pathologists were not declining, which it is, it would be growing very, very slowly. And the pace of demand for those services would be far outstripping the number of pathologists coming into the system. Yeah, and this so, is you know, it's not to say head. that you go from like... Yeah, it's, and this no, is all what you say is only on our markets, but look at uh, Africa, Asia, they don't have the medical capacity to deliver this kind of service, so they are just lacking diagnosis capacity. And so um, definitely uh, using a solution like IBEX is a way to address new markets for labs uh, in a different but more, much more efficient manner. The, the other thing that you didn't mention is the effectiveness, because you know, human error, it's normal that we have yeah. we are human we shouldn't blame ourselves that we make errors and pathologists they are human like others even though their job is technical even though they are very serious even though they pay a lot of attention to what they do they will always make errors and the machine can help highlight and avoid and limit the magnitude of those errors and so definitely i think it's the right direction for medical uh, patholo- for uh, anatomic pathology to, to use this kind of platforms and that's why we you know, we, we, we were, uh, we decided to, to, you know, to develop it together with a great team of entrepreneurs. Huh? Um, another example of a company that we, so this, this one is based, is an Israeli-based company, uh, IBEX. Another example of a company that we launched, that's a UK-based company, is Birdie. I think you mentioned it. I don't know if, you, if you're aware of yeah, what Birdie. But uh, it's, it was a result of our elderly care, uh, I would say, uh, um, sprint. Uh, and we decided to create a company that would help uh, elders live longer and safer in their home. And that's exactly what Birdie is doing. It is improving the quality of care that's given in the home by providing a better assessment, by providing a better tool to monitor the, the service that's delivered, to bring closer the families and the agencies and the caregiver, and also to collect uh, key information about the elder that can help uh, early detection of uh, health conditions that are likely to deteriorate and to try to intervene uh, sooner and so to help the elder avoid hospital and ultimately uh, uh, pensionary care. Yeah, because that's how yeah, it's... Yeah, and I think that we had a... We did a social... We did, we did an elderly and social care special last week. Um, and yeah, the, the, the guest that we had on Fergus and Matthew from, from Digital Home Visits were saying basically the same thing. And they're, they're interested in the same area that Birdie's interested in, which is how do you use technology to keep people at home longer? Because as soon as they move either into a hospital or into, you know, in, into a care home, um, their decline, generally speaking, is significantly more rapid than if you can keep them in their own home. And so, um, yeah, I know there's a lot of people looking looking in that space, which, again, I think maybe this is why you looked at that sector, but it's only going to be a problem that's getting more, you know. Exactly. It's going to be bigger this and bigger. The problem is, the, yeah. And, and the technology can definitely help a lot. I don't know what you think, but uh, 
technology can help a lot. And Birdie is today on a, on a good stream. They are gaining market share uh, quite quickly. They are equipping more and more agencies. And they are starting to, you know, to, to identify some use cases of uh, preventing disease uh, and deterioration, which, uh, yeah, which put them uh, on a very, very good position, I would say, competitive position on the field. I, uh, yeah, they, are, they, are, they have been invested recently by uh, Index. Um, oh, nice. And, um, yeah, and the company is going fine. The growth is, uh, is, is there. So it's promising. It was a, yeah, still a small, uh, small company, but yes. Um, Good. Another, what, about, what about Medloop? Because we had Medloop on the show. Yes, so I was, uh, I was taking them in chronological order. You know, Medloop was an, is the next oh, one. Oh, sorry. No, no, it's okay. And Medloop is the next one. Medloop is a company where we, we investigated, I would say, um, uh, surgery uh, management systems. We strongly believe that today the problem of surgery management systems is that they are focused on the surgery and they are not open to the patient in a manner that really engage them and that optimize the flow of the patient-to-doctor relationships and messaging. And so we wanted to create a solution that would uh, enlarge, you know, the, the, the increase the reach of the doctor and enlarge the horizons of the patients. And that's what Medloop is doing, you know. So they started in both... Uh, Germany and uh, and UK, and they developed a solution uh, in both markets. They are now splitting the two markets because I must say the dynamics are so different that it doesn't make sense to address uh, them both. Yeah, those two markets are really different. Yeah. yeah, even though in the beginning it was useful for them to see those two angles and to understand that there is there should be a consistent approach to the patient regardless of the system. And so to, today in the UK, they're having a, a full solution for surgery to manage both uh, planned care and unplanned care across, uh, I would say, even not one surgery, but a set of surgeries and providing a supplementary care when the surgery is too loaded, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the solution is quite interesting. It's also on a relatively early stage company, but uh, they, they definitely, I think, are onto something that can completely change the way... Uh, uh, ICSs are going to manage their activity in the UK, but more importantly to me, the way patients are going to interact with their uh, with, with their health services. Um, so that's Medloop. Another example of a company we develop, and I'll go faster now because uh, they are probably earlier stage. Well, except for this one, Apricity, which is working on the IVF field. You see, so we, we realize that IVF is at the same time a medical practice and a business, which creates some uh, complexities in, for the patients that want to go through it. It's an out-of-pocket thing. It's quite expensive. It's complicated. It's stressful. And we created through Apricity a digital clinic that is completely patient-centric, that remove a lot of the stress around fertility, that uh, provide, I would say, a personal care, personal guidance at every step of the process. And similarly, they're growing quite fast. They, they, they gave birth to a tenth uh, of uh, babies in the UK. They're operating in the UK. Uh, and, and they work uh, through, I would say, a B2C and a B2B uh, channel distribution. That, and both of them are starting to, to deliver uh, quite nice volumes. So, uh, yeah, the, clearly the product market fit is proving to be there too. So you see, uh, this is a few examples. And then in the more recent company we have launched, uh, you have things around uh, 
uh, menopause, you have things around uh, um, cancer uh, care, you have uh, Nixio, an Israeli company, you have things around uh, uh, CVD detection through voice analysis. We have a brilliant company in Israel that developed this technology called the called the cardiocall, etc., etc. So we have, a, you know, I, I will stop there because I think I will lose everybody now. <laughs> well, look, we are about to finish the show. So just before we go, I just in one minute, um, what would you say the key behavior is that you've seen that determines whether a team or, or individual is going to be successful as an entrepreneur? Um, so there are a few. Uh, there is a little bit of the boldness. It will be a bit contradictory what I'm going to say because I think entrepreneurs, to be successful as an entrepreneur, you need to be a five-legged uh, sheep. Uh, <laughs> there is a little bit of boldness because uh, you will not raise money if you don't have a little bit of that, you know. Uh, entrepreneurs are attacking uh, mountains with a wooden sword <laughs> and they break them. So, you know, so in order to do that, you need to be bold. You also need to, to find the right spot to, to hit. Uh, second, a lot of modesty because you need to be bold in your interaction. But if you are not modest in your decision-making process, you're going to get it wrong for sure. You know, as I said, we make mistakes. We cannot be uh, too bold on our mistakes. And uh, coachability is also one. You need to listen. Okay. And uh, last... Uh, uh, leadership and drive, the ability to build a team, to motivate people, to engage them together with you on this crazy journey that you're that you're taking. And I think if you put all that in one individual, which is very rarely the case, it, you have a winning guy. But if you put all that in a team, you also have a winning team. Good. Well, look, on that note, I've yelled at because we're going to finish the show. But thank you very much for coming. Michael Nidam, co-founder of Canet. Thanks for coming on the Health Tech Hour and thank you to everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with a great show. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye.